when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hello, and welcome to FT Politics, our weekly discussion of UK politics at Westminster and beyond, with me, Miranda Green. Joining me today are George Parker, our political editor, And today, our special guest is Henry Newman of the Open Europe Think Tank to discuss what to expect from Boris Johnson, the new Prime Minister. Jim Pickard, our chief political correspondent, is also going to be here to pick over what the opposition is up to. Henry, welcome and thank you very much for coming in. George, I said what to expect, but so far the signals seem to be expect the unexpected. I mean, this new cabinet is not the unify the party, unify the country message that we were given during the leadership campaign from the Johnson camp. And he's also brought in this very controversial figure, Dominic Cummings, to sit at the heart of government Mm. to push his agenda through. Well, during the course of the leadership campaign, Mark Fulbrook, who was one of Linton Crosby's psychics, came up with this strategy, which was deliver, unite, defeat. So the first part of that was deliver Brexit. And what we've seen with this cabinet and the formation of the team in number 10 is a laser-like focus on delivering Brexit. And as you say, it's far more hardcore than anyone, I think, expected. The reshuffle puts Harold Millen's Night of the Long Knives into the shade. Fifteen ministers from Theresa May's government either sacked or resigned before they were sacked. And as you say, he's brought in into all the top jobs, prominent Brexiteers, with the possible exception of Sajid Javid, who's gone into the Treasury. But everyone else really just focused on that 31st of October delivery date for Brexit. And as you say, playing a big role. And I think this is a really surprising appointment, Dominic Cummings, who Only a week ago, they said they had no plans to bring Dominic Cummings in. He was the mastermind, of course, of the Vote Leave campaign, portrayed by Benedict Cumberbatch in a brilliant Channel 4 film, if you haven't seen it. A genius, but also a very divisive figure and also almost a sort of anarchist in the way he wants to shake everything up and then rebuild from the bottom. He holds politicians in contempt. He holds civil servants in contempt. He's an odd person to have at the heart of a government because he will be a disruptor, but certainly make things interesting. But yeah, as you say, it's a team... In the first instance, about delivering Brexit, I think then we can talk about unifying the country and other sorts of priorities. But the first priority that will define Boris Johnson is Brexit. So, Henry, before we get to the meat of the Brexit plan, you've actually worked with Dominic Cummings and you know these characters well from your time in government. Have we got Cummings wrong or should we, because he's there, really get used to a very disrupted period? Well, I have to make a confession. I've never seen the Channel 4 documentary or movie with Benedict Cumberbatch. But it's I did, fantastic. But I was there in person on the Leave campaign, so slightly closer up. And also he was a colleague at the end of his time as a special advisor and the beginning of my time as a special advisor. So I've seen how he works. I think, George, it's slightly overstated to say that he holds politicians and civil servants in contempt. He's certainly very critical about some politicians and some civil servants, but certainly not all. And what I saw both in government and in Vote Leave was that he inspires huge loyalty amongst people that work with him and for him and builds a good team. He's also very open and friendly with junior staff. So it's very much a sort of open door policy. I think where he's actually very brutal and brutally honest often, is with his superiors. So it's certainly not a sort of mm. kiss-up, kick-down culture. It's the very inverse. And good advisors should be 
tough on their political masters. Otherwise, what's the point of having you there if you just say yes to everything? I'd also slightly challenge this idea that this is a seriously hard Brexit cabinet and very hardcore. Yes, there were some eye-catching appointments. And as you said, clearly everybody around that table has committed to the 31st deadline Mm. of October. But that's exactly what Boris said he was going to do. And actually, we've got Nicky Morgan back in the cabinet and we've got Rob Buckland joining as the new Lord Chancellor. It's obviously a very important constitutional role. So it's not all Brexiteers. In fact, I think the majority of the cabinet voted Remain in the 2016 election. So I don't quite recognise that depiction. What Dom Cummings will do, though, is grip the Whitehall machine. There was a sort of narrative running, perhaps, during Boris's leadership that Boris would have a very weak number 10, that it could be for sort of the Treasury and other departments to really run things. I don't think that's at all plausible reading now. So that was the sort of theory that it would be chairman, not chief executive, which is how people said he ran the London mayoralty. I think he still may be very much of a chair figure, but delegating also within his own team to Dom Cummings and other trusted advisers, who are, of course, accountable to him. But I think that some... Conservative backbench supporters of Boris Johnson envisaged a very strong number 11, which would basically be running the government. I don't think that's now plausible. I think it's quite clear that Boris Johnson wants his own team in Downing Street to be very powerful. He also made a decision to elevate my former boss, Michael Gove, with whom I worked at the Justice Department, and make him essentially running the Whitehall operation to get the government ready for no deal. So Boris Johnson seems to be somebody in a tremendous hurry. And he's right to be because his honeymoon is going to be incredibly brief. We're going to find out in fewer than 100 days, whether his premiership is going to be a success or a catastrophic failure. It's very interesting that. I mean, I was thinking yesterday, he seems to be the only person in Britain who's taken Donald Tusk seriously when he said, don't waste this time. It's just that it may not be the sort of anti-time-wasting agenda that Donald Tusk had in mind. Henry, you've brought up this extraordinarily exciting thing, really, of putting Michael Gove... They famously fell out during a previous leadership election in charge of the no deal preparations. Now, is this sort of poison challenge? Is this some sort of elaborate revenge or is this actually to do with a serious speeded up effort? of getting everything done by October the 31st. So my understanding is that Boris Johnson's view was that ultimately you needed the best player on the pitch to do that role, that getting Whitehall really ready for no deal was an enormous task. So back in March, Whitehall's had maxed out their preparedness plans and there was a lot of behind-the-scenes preparations made. I think some people were very critical of those preparations, but speaking to the civil servants involved, they were confident they'd done a huge amount. But what they hadn't really done was the full-scale transformations that might also be required. So they'd done the most within the parameters of keeping things broadly as they were. When I spoke to some political advisers who are now working around the sort of centre of government on these preparations for No Deal... What they've said is it's just night and day difference from how it was before. Previously, the Treasury had allocated some money towards No Deal, but there'd also been a semi-go-slow. And there'd been departmental warfare between different ministers about how far to go on No Deal, whether No Deal was all a big bluff, whether it was also something that should seriously be considered. That's all gone. The Treasury is going to be turning on the taps, spending the money that's required on No Deal. And I think we should expect a much more radical rethinking of some of the plans around No Deal. So not just waiving, for example, customs through in the event of No Deal for a certain period of time, but maybe reconsidering overall how we're collecting customs, moving away from doing all these sort of things at the border, and therefore a much more transformative approach to potentially a No Deal, but also potentially Brexit. So it's away from contingency. I think it is away from contingency. And I take Boris Johnson at his word when he says he is keen to do a deal. But I also think he's right to say, and I'm somebody who 
supported the deal and thought it was the best way through. But that deal is dead. It's failed to pass the Commons three times. I cannot see how it's going to pass the Commons without very substantial changes. And so far, the signs coming out of Brussels are not that those changes are on offer. When I speak to my contacts in the Elysee or in embassies from European countries here in the UK... They do say that there's some possibility of movement. But what exactly that is, they're not yet saying. And they're not certainly saying that we could take the whole of the backstop out of the deal. So I think it's totally the right thing to prepare formally for no deal. After all, no deal remains a legal default, unless we're going to revoke Article 50, which nobody in the Conservative Party is seriously proposing at this point, or extend Article 50 again, which, of course, Boris Johnson's very much against and would require the unanimous agreement of all the 27 EU countries. What are the other options? George, what's your analysis of this? Is no deal now very much the most likely option because of the drawbacks that Henry has explained with trying to get changes from Brussels and reopening the withdrawal agreement? And do you think actually that that's what this government is about? It's about leaving October the 31st and that that most likely method is in fact no deal? Well, I think a lot of people in Brussels thought that Boris Johnson would be campaigning on a very hard Brexit ticket in order to get into number 10 and to win over the the votes from Conservative Party members, that once inside number 10, he would start to tack to a more moderate position, try to find ways of dressing up Theresa May's deal, putting lipstick on it, as some people say, and then bring it back to the House of Commons, try to get it through with some Labour votes, leaving aside some of the European Research Group Conservatives who probably wouldn't vote for it. Instead of which, we've seen Boris Johnson come into number 10 and basically take on quite a confrontational approach. He hasn't shown any signs so far of watering down his position. And almost with every statement he makes, he puts down more markers, which suggests he's not prepared to move. And in the first statement he gave to the House of Commons on Thursday, it was essentially saying, we want the backstop abolished, as he put it. We want the withdrawal agreement is dead. And we are prepared to talk to you, Brussels, on that basis. It's almost like, don't bother picking up the phone unless you're prepared to meet our initial demands. And you've got a very strong and immediate reaction from Brussels where Jean-Claude Juncker gave Boris Johnson his mobile phone number, but essentially implied don't bother ringing unless you accept that the withdrawal agreement is the best and only thing that's on the table. So if you take all those things at face value, it looks like, yes, no deal becomes more likely unless either side is prepared to give ground in the coming weeks. And then, of course, you run into the question of whether no deal is actually a viable option given the forces against that being ranged in the House of Commons. And George, what should we make of Steve Baker, one of the most prominent members of the European Research Group, actually refusing to serve in the Johnson government? I mean, is this sort of reading the tea leaves? Is this a sign of trouble to come on the Eurosceptic right of the Tory party? Well, it could be. And you had people like Marc Francois, who's a leading light of the ERG, saying that the ERG will vote against anything which looks like Theresa May's deal, even if the backstops were removed. Steve Baker is one of the so-called Spartans who is prepared to defy anything which doesn't look like the purest form of Brexit. So it looks like the real hardliners are sitting on the back benches waiting with their Spartan spears in case <laughs> Boris Johnson shows any sign of betraying them or backtracking. Well, at least he's got a good education in Greek history, so <laughs> exactly. he's aware of what happens next. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But the other, the other thing about Steve Baker is it might be that we're overanalyzing this slightly. I mean, Steve Baker was offered a job at the Department of Exit in the European Union, which frankly doesn't seem to have a role anymore now that... And not at the Cabinet table. Not indeed. And that was Henry's old boss, Michael Gove, is now running No Deal Planning. That was the only role that Dexiu had left. So what on earth would Steve Baker be doing there? Yes, absolutely. Henry, what's your reaction to that? Because certainly watching Boris Johnson's first major appearance in the Commons yesterday... It was striking. I mean, the fact that he's a good parliamentary performer was such a change from what's gone before in the last three years. There was a moment, there was a moment when I thought, OK, well, you know, maybe this force of personality stuff and the idea of new 
faster momentum can actually achieve something. Right. But surely what George has said is true, isn't it? That he's actually got more red lines than Mrs May now and trying to find a way through them becomes more and more difficult. It is certainly very difficult. I think, that, as you were saying, Boris did very well in the Commons yesterday overall. I thought his best bit was when he was essentially ad-libbing and just turned his attacks on Corbyn. And that was really quite extraordinary. I hadn't seen the Conservative benches looking that happy since Michael Gove's wind-up in the vote of confidence several months back. So I think that's a totally night and day shift. But the trouble is ahead for Boris Johnson, above all in Parliament, because there are two blocks of MPs on the backbenches, which are both threatening to bring down the government. On one side, you've got those Eurosceptics now, including Steve Baker. And I think it was your profile with Seb Payne in the FT magazine of Boris Johnson, which had a sort of quote in there from ERG MP or source or something threatening a horse's head in the bed if Boris didn't deliver a true Brexit. That's an Italian example rather than a Greek example of their willingness to be very... Southern Europe's fine. We'll just gloss over that. (laughs) Exactly. And then on the other side, you've got a group of MPs, the awkward squads, including others like Dominic Grieve, who are willing to bring down the government if they try to pursue no deal. So the space for Boris is so, so tight. I also agreed with George that what I was hearing in Brussels and from, again, diplomatic contacts here was... Boris is going to come in and then do a Nixon to China and suddenly shift around and be a massive conciliatory figure. I was saying to them, I don't think that's true. I think his reservations about the deal are very, very profound, particularly about the backstop. I think, though, there is still some wiggle room in what he's saying and what the EU's saying. He's saying he doesn't like the anti-democratic backstop. Could you read that qualification and say that if you found some way of making it so that there was some democratic oversight of the backstop, Great Britain can leave the backstop, it goes to a Northern Ireland only backstop, and that can be exited via a referendum. I'm just Mm. offering some ways through. So I don't think it's actually quite as shut down as people have suggested. On the EU side, Juncker said, well, this is the only deal that we've agreed and it's the only way out unless the guidelines from the European Council change. Of course, the European Council aren't scheduled to meet for quite a while, but nonetheless, there's still some space there. And I think, though, Boris is just very serious about delivering that 31st of October mandate. And that's the ultimate red line that he's set. And that matters more than anything else to him. George, back to the backstop, <laughs> but possibly not this backstop, another backstop. Emmanuel Macron is very keen to meet Boris Johnson as soon as possible. He's extended an invitation within the next few days. What do you make of this wiggle room? I think it is limited, but in the end, Boris Johnson might conclude that actually finding some sort of accommodation on the backstop and trying to find a way through with the deal is the best way out of this because the other route going down the no-deal route is potentially economically disastrous and it could get blocked and you could end up in an election sooner than later. So I agree with Henry. I think there still is scope for some kind of discussion. And we know from Boris Johnson's track record, he's someone who's quite capable of turning things on its head quite rapidly, as he did with Heathrow. So he is certainly, in Donald Trump way, sort of quite a flexible politician. But that would involve him making a big calculation, which is he's prepared to take on the Eurosceptics we've just been talking about and try to push a deal through with Labour votes. And that's also a risky strategy. Can we just wind back a second? I think one of the interesting things, though, is that who Boris Johnson's been putting around him. Certainly, David Frost, as his sort of Europe Sherpa, is a political appointment, but somebody who's formerly been an ambassador. A clear Eurosceptic, he served on the advisory council of my think tank for a while. But he's not somebody who's a diehard ideologue. He's sort of clearly committed Brexiteer, but somebody who I think could be 
more pragmatic ultimately. I think the same thing is true of Dominic Cummings. For all that people tend to criticise Dom as a, you call him an anarchist, or I think uh, David Cameron used some other flattering terms. Trotskyite, actually, some of them. Right. Um, But I think what's interesting about Dom is if you look at how he ran the referendum campaign and the messages that they chose, they weren't classic Eurosceptic messages where the centre-right would bang on about the democratic gap in Europe and the importance of free trade deals. Of course, there was a bit of that, but it was really about more money for the NHS, which was a very unusual message for Conservatives. Dom is a pragmatist and somebody who's driven by what works. So I think that those appointments have actually reassured me that they're serious about potentially preparing for a no deal and they're doing the right thing, I think, by maximising all their efforts in that direction. But equally, if there was a way through, they wouldn't throw it out just for the sake of throwing it out. And would they throw it out just because the clock was ticking on the 30th of October and the 31st was moments away? I don't know. I think, again, Boris Johnson had to answer this during the leadership and was quite definitive, but how does reality look when you're closer to it? I don't know. But I think what is interesting, I remember sitting around with some civil servants talking about the difficulty, even if we got a deal today, of delivering it through the Commons and through the Lords without guillotining abilities by the 31st October. And they were blanching about that possibility and saying it's just impossible parliamentary-wise. On the other hand, part of the whole problem that we've been in is that MPs have always felt able to kick the can down the road, never felt that there was a real deadline and therefore never faced actual choices. And I think that having that hard deadline and the sense that it's got to be done by then could be a benefit as well as a danger. George? I just want to pick up something that Henry said earlier, which I thought was really interesting about the mood on the Tory benches on Thursday when Boris Johnson took on Jeremy Corbyn, mocking him as he'd been the victim of the invasion of the body snatchers and he'd been turned into a Remainer. And at that point, Jeremy Corbyn looked like a shrunken figure. I thought that was a very clear indication to the Tory party, look, if we can somehow sort out Brexit without bringing the party to its knees and without bringing the economy to its knees, we have a clear run at an election against someone we can beat. And that is an incentive, I think, for them to get a deal rather than go for no deal. Okay, very short, quick, final question to both of you. Are we heading for a general election before the end of the year? And will we have left the EU by then, Henry? God, I mean, the answer to both <laughs> of those find, is... find a way of not answering if you wish. <laughs> I mean, but... Yes, obviously. Um, but the answer to both of those is maybe. I think a general election has been overdue ever since 2017. Look at the size of the Conservatives' path to power, and it's very, very narrow. So I think the miracle really is how long the general election has been held off for. It's coming, whether it's coming by the end of the year... I don't know, but I don't think it's realistic you're going to last till 2022. Will Brexit get done this year? Again, I think the chances of delivering Brexit have fallen, but I think that Boris Johnson is determined to make his whole government machine all about getting that done. George? Well, I think an election will happen in the next eight months or so, or nine months, but certainly by the first half of 2020. And the government majority is two. It's about to go down to one when the Tories lose the Brecon by-election. So it's going to have to happen, and it could happen this year. Are we going to be out of the EU on the 31st of October? I think no. I see the government's geared towards it, but the practicality of getting this done in such a short space of time, I think, is very unrealistic. Meanwhile, the opposition parties are jostling and positioning, trying to work out how to react to the Boris juggernaut. Not least, Nigel Farage, leader of this new vehicle he invented, the Brexit Party. Jim Pickard, thanks very much for squeezing in a chat at the end of this crazy week. You and our colleague in the US, Gillian Tett, had a very interesting scoop about what Mr Farage has been up to in the States, which potentially could be a warning for incoming ministers. Can you take us through it? Yeah, so Gillian was invited to this private event, the New York Athletics Club in Manhattan, and she had a perfectly civil chat with Mr Farage, who spoke to her about two things. The first was a new group called World for Brexit, where a load of Trump-supporting Americans 
are being tapped up for money, for a sort of new lobbying body to pay money towards Brexit. And the shape that investment will take will be not in funding candidates, but in, as I understand it, digging dirt on the Remain camp, to use their words, to dig deep, find out who is really running the show. And the way Farage characterizes it is that he says it's an attempt to raise money as an antidote to pro-EU organizations. And he singles out George Soros, the billionaire Hungarian-born U.S. citizen, and he accuses Soros of funding all the negativity. There's something in their literature where they suggest that Soros has dropped tens of millions of dollars on the Remain side. In reality, Mr. Soros has actually put less than a million pounds towards an organization called Best for Britain, which is seeking a second referendum. So they're lying about the level of investment in the Remain campaign from Soros. But leaving that aside, the other interesting thing that Farage said to Gillian Tett was that he'd been chatting to Donald Trump the day before, and Trump is very keen on the Brexit party joining forces with the Conservatives so that forces of right-wing Brexitism are no longer split. And that is obviously Jeremy Corbyn's worst nightmare, or indeed for any of the sort of left-wing Romani parties. Because if you think there is still about 50% of the British adult public that is in favour of Brexit, and people are voting more and more along Brexit or anti-Brexit lines, that's quite a formidable number of people that could be there for the taking if, if Boris Johnson can negate Farage's Brexit party. But the interesting thing is that Farage is a little bit sceptical about the idea of whether he would work with Johnson. So Nigel Farage also says in your piece with Gillian, if Boris does Brexit, that is great. This is a direct quote. But every sense inside me tells me he will fail. So this is surely also part of Nigel Farage keeping his movement alive, no? Yeah, I mean, I think there's an element of that. And obviously, he wants to project himself within the US as Mr. Brexit, whereas an awful lot of people now see Boris Johnson as potentially Mr. Brexit. But I think, to be fair to Farage, he still is relevant. His Brexit party was only set up in the spring. They won the European elections. They're still polling, I think, in the low 20s. They are still a real and present danger to the Conservative Party. And he talks about if he is let down by Johnson and Johnson tries to do another kind of fudgy Theresa May type compromise Brexit deal, then he would be the worst enemy that Johnson's ever had. He would ensure that the Brexit party supplants and replaces the Conservative Party it's quite sort of threatening comments that he gave to us. On the other hand, he says, you know, there are grounds for conversation. There could be a pact. He sees the logic of it. But he's admitting that it's not that easy for the Tories either because it could cause a historic split in the Conservative Party. He admits that many Tory MPs loathe him. It's quite interesting listening to these Farage comments. He can't decide whether he's essential to the merger project or whether the merger project won't work. And there's this great quote where he says, they can say what they want at the moment, but at some point in time... Boris will realise that without me, he cannot win. So, Jim, also, meanwhile, the forces of Remain, of course, are still very splintered. But the Lib Dems do have a new leader as well this week, Joe Swinson, who's keen to make alliances, not, however, with Jeremy Corbyn. And the Labour Party still seem very ambivalent, both on the subject of Remain and in how they could get to the general election they profess to want. I have heard Labour people this week say that Boris Johnson's sort of hardline senior cabinet appointments, Pretty Patel and Dominic Raab in those great offices of state, for example, actually helps the Labour Party because it might polarise opinion away from the Conservative Brexit wing and into the arms of Labour again. I think the only problem with that logic is that for kind of pro-EU former Tories, 
not massively politically passionate, but if they don't like Brexit, it's just the Lib Dems they're going. They're not going across to Jeremy Corbyn's Labour, partly because Jeremy Corbyn's Labour is not explicitly a Remain party. Secondly, because former Tories don't tend to really embrace the idea of a quasi-Marxist government, one might argue. And what's quite interesting is Labour's path to victory, inverted commas, if you look at what happened in 2017, it's all about convincing people that they're the ones who are going to spread loads of money all over the investment in public services, investment infrastructure, that kind of thing. So firstly, Boris Johnson poses a threat on that front because he's talking about turning on the spending tabs. I think also they have an issue that you've got a new leader of the Lib Dems looking very dynamic, a new leader of the Conservatives looking very dynamic. And I've been doing a ring around this morning with some quite senior Labour people who are loyal to Jeremy Corbyn. And I have to say, the mood is pretty despondent. They're really worried about their own lack of energy, the fact that they don't seem to really be on election footing, the fact they don't really have sound bites and strategy. Someone very senior just said to me that our message is all about anti-austerity. It's not a very uplifting, positive message, especially if Boris Johnson very visibly starts taking apart austerity and spending loads of money once again. Well, thank you very much, Jim. I'm Miranda Green, and you've been listening to the FT's Politics Podcast with George Parker, Jim Picard, and our special guest, Henry Newman. Next week, George Parker will be in the presenter's chair as Seb is still away. But in the meantime, my thanks to you for listening and to our producers, Anna Dedder and Salome Puhaladze. If you enjoyed it, do think of subscribing and send us your feedback. And if you're not already an FT subscriber, do visit ft.com forward slash offer for our latest subscription offers. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.